the trade war between the United States and China was a close call, but there is another storm brewing on the horizon in the form of an impending tax war. On today's episode of The Fiona Show Transfer Pricing, we're diving into the problem areas that could cause an implosion in the global tax community and what it could mean for multinationals caught in the middle. We're joined today by Cross-Border Solutions Director in Solutions Engineering, Doug Darling, and Director of International Tax, Michael DeSimone. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. results are in for tax dispute peer reviews, that is. The OECD released the latest assessment of countries' efforts to meet minimum tax dispute resolution standards. So which countries will be hanging their reports on their fridge? Latvia and India took home gold as the only two countries to meet the standards tax dispute prevention requirements. While India did excel in the prevention category, it fell short in its implementation and closing time of MAP agreements. You win some, you lose some. The target closing time of MAP cases is 24 months, India clocked in at 34 months, Croatia at 44 months, and South Africa at 27. Hey, there's always next year. The United Arab Emirates is putting MAP on the map. The tax authority released guidance on how to settle tax and transfer pricing disputes. We've got the highlight reel. Taxpayers can request assistance if they feel that their current or future taxation violates the double tax treaty provision. As for transfer pricing, MAP can be utilized for adjustments made to a permanent establishment's attributable profits or adjustments made between related parties in different countries. The guidance irons MAP application procedures, relevant double tax treaties that the United Arab Emirates participates in, and resolution timelines. The tax authority has 30 days to respond to a taxpayer's mutual agreement procedure request, while the taxpayer has the same amount of time to submit additional information if asked. The Ministry of Finance will alert the taxpayer of acceptance or rejection of the request within, you guessed it, 30 days. As for MAP resolution, the Ministry of Finance expects a two-year timeline from when the request is first submitted. Forget masks, vaccines, and hand sanitizer, Poland's worried about COVID-19's impact on transfer pricing. In fact, the Ministry of Finance issued proposed recommendations on how to handle transfer pricing impacted during the pandemic. The document is open to public consultation and hints at potential legislative changes. Here's what to expect. The recommendations primarily cover comparability analysis, including losses, extraordinary costs, and government support. The Ministry of Finance recommends prospective or ex-post analysis taking into consideration information that becomes available after the close of the taxable year. The recommendations say that previous economic crises, such as the 2008 financial crisis, are not comparable to the pandemic and that government support should be considered in the comparability analysis. When it comes to documentation, the Ministry of Finance is accepting both public and internal data to indicate a company's compliance with the arm's length principle. The takeaway? Polish taxpayers need to get up close and personal with COVID-19 transfer pricing. No six-foot rule here. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing 
reporting software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here right now with Director in Solutions Engineering, Doug Darling here at Crossborder, along with Crossborder's own Director of International Tax, Michael DeSimone. We're here to talk about the looming tax war on the horizon. Uh, thank you so much for being with us, both of you. Thank you. It's our pleasure being here. So let, let's actually start with Michael. Uh, tell us about where you're located at the moment, and uh, have you returned to the office yet? Actually, at this stage of the game, I'm still working from home. I have not returned to the office uh, as a practical matter. That really is something we're playing by ear at this point in time. I'm not quite sure exactly when everything is going to be fully open. But too early to tell, I guess. Yes. And uh, as I know, Doug right now is in Texas. Yes. Yeah, so I am actually remote, assigned-wise, and uh, live and work in Galveston, Texas. We are opening a Houston office, and I do plan on going in there a couple times a week. I do miss people a little bit. I've been working remotely for about the last year and almost half since the pandemic. It'll be good to get back in the office occasionally and see people. Yeah, amen to that. Uh, I'm back here in Terrytown, and it's uh, we get a handful of faces. It's not quite uh, what it was before pandemic, but it's it's great to see everybody. Um, so, Doug, let's stick with you for a second, because uh, I know Michael has explained this in, in past episodes, and I'll give him a chance to reiterate and, and, and update us. But what has it been like for you watching the pandemic play out from a tax perspective? Well, I think primarily, and it, it, it's more specific of, of tax is transfer pricing, where where what we've seen is the reduction of revenue in general by the majority of companies globally, right? They don't have the sales, they are generating losses. And so I think, you know, where we're going to see that not to, you know, uh, jump too far ahead from tax perspective is in the comparables and the benchmarks that we are able to put together for benchmarking companies' profitability. We're going to see a lot of shift and fluctuation in those because of companies' uh, loss-making maybe going out of business. So from a tax perspective, we're just now going to start to see the effects of the pandemic, and we're going to see it in the comparables and the benchmarking, the companies that we include, because you're going to see companies' loss-making going out of business, et cetera, et cetera. So from a tax and transfer pricing perspective, I think we're just now going to start to see the effects of the pandemic. and hasn't been quite so obvious for me, from my perspective, or from a tax perspective. We're just now going to get into it. And so, Michael, we, we heard how things look from where Doug sits. How about from where you sit? How does the pandemic pan out? Actually, I think I agree completely with Doug in terms of what's going on in terms of comparables, how things are going to be uh, judged accordingly. But I think there's going to be a larger implication on this also. I think people are taking this time right now to really reevaluate what their supply chains look like. Where are they going to be focusing the activities on? How to diversify sources? for materials, how to look at what manufacturing they have and where they have it. And I think it's been an eye-opener in a lot of ways, precisely because it caused such disruption. Because things that you used to think that you could get just in time, you couldn't. And that is going to be the challenge that people are facing right now. And I think there's a lot of opportunities in that. People are going to be looking at this as to what they're doing, where they're doing it, and why they're doing it in those locations and seeing of other ways of trying to be more creative in how to put this together to avoid some of the larger bumps and bruises that we took in the most recent history on that. Of course. So, so Mike, you, you just stole my thunder. I, I was going to have that <laughs> maybe on the next point. Um, yeah, and, 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 and no, in supply chains. I, I absolutely agree. People are going to reevaluate their supply chains. They're going to need to. They're going to need to shorten their supply chains where possible. And I think where people felt the pain most is just the fact that so many things are manufactured in China 
and China shut down the pandemic, I think that impacted supply chain hugely, immensely. Uh, and so people are going to need to reevaluate that. Exactly. I think diversification of the supply chains is probably going to be the other side of that coin also. Not looking to China, but like the Vietnam, Thailand, Philippines, and a whole list of other jurisdictions in terms of just sourcing. But you're right. Also, shortening the supply chains is going to be critical now, too. So uh, before we get into the meat of, of the discussion, although I think we're already just getting started, which is exciting, let's start at the foundational level just for our listeners. Uh, what are the main areas of tax contention that fuel a tax war? Ultimately, it looks like it's always been a race to the bottom in terms of people trying to draw activities to their jurisdiction so that they can gain some sort of advantage on that. Now, when you look at it on the international level, you have a lot of different things that are occurring in there because there's so many different players involved on that. One of the big issues, though, is really what's going on when you look at Ireland and the relationship to the rest of the world and what they've accomplished on that, as opposed to the traditional, quote unquote, tax havens, like going at things in the Caymans. You have two different dynamics that are working in there. Ireland has been approaching it from the point of view of they not only want to be drawing companies to there, but they want to be drawing employment to their shores. And so it's really a combination of different factors over there that have made it attractive. To begin with, you have an educated workforce that companies can take advantage of and an attractive tax rate. But it's also something that companies are being drawn to on that. When you look at other countries that have lost out to Ireland on that, their entire argument is really what's going on how it's going on, and what can we do to recapture some of this, or at least capture the activity that used to be here? And I think that's really the challenge that everybody's going to face on that. And Doug, any anything to add there? What should companies look for in a, in a tax war, or what should they prepare for? I, I think what companies should be on the look for is jurisdictions that are willing to give, maybe not lower their tax rates, uh, give tax holidays, other kinds of incentives to attract that business. I personally, I, I don't see it as a bad thing. I, I applaud jurisdictions that take the approach of we're going to accept a, a smaller percentage of a greater amount than you know a jurisdiction, a, a traditional jurisdiction that has high tax rate, like a France or et cetera, that is going to have high tax, but on less of a base. The Ireland's of the world, et cetera, that's their strategy. We're going to take a smaller percentage, but the base is going to be so much larger. That's where we're going to make up for it. But I, I again, like I said, in addition to looking for those lower tax rates, um, be on the lookout to negotiate those tax holidays, etc. Staying with you, Doug, uh, how does the current international tax system provide the perfect breeding ground for a tax war? How does it further aggravate the problem of taxing multinationals? So, you know, to answer your question, um, it, it, first and foremost, it's outdated, right? The current tax system, you know, it, it's old. It's created hundreds of years ago in, in different variations and reiterations. You know, there, there wasn't the types of businesses that exist today, i.e. the digital economy, the ability to conduct a business uh, from a location that isn't even in that jurisdiction but yet is impactful on the jurisdiction and pulls revenue from that jurisdiction. So, you know, I, I think the main thing, and, and Mike could probably add more, but I, I think that the fact that it's so outdated and hasn't kept up with the advancements in, in technology and business. Further to Doug's point on that, that's true. The tax system itself has really not kept up with technology, but that's true in general. Laws always lag behind to changes in technology. Here, though, you've got a couple of different factors at play in there. Not only has it failed to keep up with technology, but it's also failed to keep up with the nature of the economies themselves and where they're going and how they're heading towards that. And that's really going to be a social issue as much as a tax issue. How do you try to draw to your shores activity that's going to provide gainful employment for your folks, to give them good paychecks on there, but at the same token, also have within it the ability to generate the tax revenue necessary to maintain your society? and what your society's goals are. And that's really the key issue that you have in any system of taxation. No matter how much you try to divorce it, taxes and social programs are always tied together because in order to provide for the common good, you need to fund how you're going to provide for the common good. And that's always the push and pull on that. 
And Doug's point on revenue base widening is quite appropriate. The fact of the matter is that there's been many experiments in trying to widen the base, but you always get into the basic definitional issues as to, well, what is that base going to be? What activities are we going to try and tax at a certain rate? How are we going to establish what that rate should be, what those activities should be? And that's really where you get into a lot of the arguments as to what the nature of the government's supposed to be and what its obligations to its citizens are versus the obligations of the citizens to their government on that. Of course, of course. Speaking of taxing multinationals, what role do services and intellectual property play in global tax disputes? We'll have Mike start. Well, there's a lot of interplay on that because as a practical matter, services are really where a lot of the economies have headed towards today. And really, when you're looking at a service economy, the question then becomes one of measurement. What is the appropriate metric for trying to establish that? And in relation to that, there's a lot of other activities that are occurring, some of which actually involve IP from a practical point of view. That is, the IP is necessary to support the activity that's going on in there in one form or another. Now, when you think in terms of activity on that, it could be something as simple as how do you schedule who's doing what, where in a service like food delivery or the food preparation aspect of it. Where are you doing that? How are you doing that? How are you coordinating all that? The other side of the coin is the the IP gets involved again at the higher end of it. That is making sure that all the necessary elements to deliver things are in place on that. And that's really where it becomes part of the brick and mortar society that people keep saying that we've gotten away from, but we really haven't. Now, when you ever look at an organization like Amazon, everybody said they were putting everything brick and mortar out of business. Yet Amazon has opened up more and more distribution centers over the last year that have replaced the traditional brick and mortar types of establishments that were on there. Because ultimately, when you're ordering something through the internet, somebody somewhere has got to, you know, take it off a shelf, put it in a box, and put it on a delivery truck to get to you. And that's really where the shift is occurring within there. How all this is playing out, that's another set of issues uh, that are really related to that. But really going back to the logistics problems, who's doing what for whom? And then, of course, you get the high end of IP, where you're looking at people from the creative side of things that are actually creating different games, different entertainment venues, things like that, and how they play out in terms of people and how that's delivering it. So all of this is really still in its infancy in terms of trying to figure out Who's doing what, where, for whom, and how the heck do we figure out measuring it all? I like to talk about the IP a lot because, you know, IP is where the real money is. That's where the real value is, right? And jurisdictions want that IP in their jurisdiction where possible. And they're willing to fight over it because it's that uh, residual profit. It's the, 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 the remuneration for the IP that is really predominantly where the revenue is the greatest, right? So that IP is very highly valued by jurisdictions and they will put up a fight if you plan on moving it from one jurisdiction to the other, right? That's where you get into major valuations of that IP and disputes over the value. There'll be exit taxes. You know, you'll get, you know, assessed massive exit taxes if you do even try to try to move that IP out of that jurisdiction. But in the long run, it's just a cost-benefit analysis. I mean, what's the cost of moving this IP from one jurisdiction to the other, even though they're going to fight like hell? But the upside of moving it to that 12.5% Ireland is just going to be outweigh that so much. So uh, I agree that you know the services in, in the IP, because of the location and where they can be, it's the IP that I really, really see tax jurisdictions putting up a fight about. As a practical matter, you go back to things like the UK diverted profits tax on that. That really is setting part of the stage on that in terms of how things are moving about, why things are moving about. And really, that's the gist of the argument, trying to make sure that you can maintain a lot of that IP within your jurisdiction without sacrificing anything else towards that. And I think that's the larger issue that's going to be coming up in terms of all of this, because quite frankly, that's also going to fuel the war that they're trying to avoid right now. Now, with Secretary Yellen's announcement that 130 countries have agreed and that they're going to be putting this into a perspective that is going to be fair and achieve a global minimum tax rate, the problem that you have is that you still have to get 130 jurisdictions 
or more to agree to a level playing field and have everybody adopting at least a similar enough set of rules that you can apply this. Now think of it, in terms of the larger context of this, you have what seems to me to be a very difficult task ahead. To begin with, you start off with just, well, what is the base going to be? How do you start describing what revenue recognition is going to be? From there, you have to look at what deductions are going to be allowed against this. And you keep going on, and it gets into more and more levels of complexity on this as to who's going to allow what is a deduction, who's not going to like this as a deduction, what are the metrics going to be, especially for service-based companies on that, in terms of what they're doing, where they're doing it, how you define what they're doing in a jurisdiction. Please finish. I was going to say, this sounds like uh, socialism for transfer pricing. Actually, in a sense, it is socialism for transfer yep. pricing. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and that's how I see the whole BEPS initiative in general. But again, I, I am a pure you know, capitalist type thinker, so it's not surprising I would think that. But, but it's easy to see how it fits into that argument. Oh, indeed. And we've got the parallel here in the States. We've had UDIPA around since 1959, and we still can't get agreement on stuff. So that's 60 years and only dealing with 50 states, 45 of which have income tax or franchise taxes based on income. Now, you multiply that by approximately 200 countries in the world. It's really going to be an extraordinarily daunting task to accomplish this. Of course. And I mean, I think at least being able to speak to the divide in this way of left, right in terms of what's happening now, just at least speaks to the moment that we're in on a a global policy front, which is now we have 130 countries agreeing on something. Let me tell you, I, I come from a global policy background. Point to me another subject at the UN, another initiative at the UN, elsewhere in international organizations where you can get 130 countries to agree to anything, and I'll make this designation meaningful, you know, outside of, you know, a flowery commitment to world peace. Yeah, we can all get on board with that. But get 130 countries to agree on any policy change, that that's a different story. And we've seen that, at least with the, the G7. You both have experience uh, extensively in tax. Uh, have you ever seen a looming tax war on the horizon like we're seeing right now? What were the telltale signs that there was trouble on the horizon? Doug, do you want to start? Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, I've never seen anything similar, experienced anything similar, right? I'm not sure how to, to answer it other than that. I just can't think of a, a similar experience or a similar environment. You know, I, maybe Mike, he can. And, and because, like I said, he's been around a little longer than me. But, but for me, this has such a unique character and flavor to it. I don't know if there is a comparable, speaking of, you know, transfer pricing terms. Mm. Mm. Uh, Michael, go ahead. I think that the closest parallel that you have is that when we had certain trade wars coming on before uh, general agreement on tariffs and trade were uh, put in place, uh, because there with the trade wars, you had people taking retaliatory actions against each other in terms of who's doing what for whom, that sort of thing, and what goods are being coming into the country on that. But that was also really not a great parallel, because that was a simpler time. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have things being supplied really in the same fashion, you didn't have supply chains structured the way they are today. And that really represents a quantum leap between then and now, in terms of the trade war, in terms of the tax war on there. The other side of the coin also is that today's environment has been grossly exaggerated and complicated because of COVID, because it's highlighted how interdependent things are today than they were even 20 years ago. And that, I think, is going to be the challenge people are going to need to face going forward, because quite frankly, that interdependence is not going away. Point of fact, my prediction about that is that it's going to get far more complicated, precisely because of the need to diversify the sources of where materials are coming from, where manufacturing processes are going, and how they're actually doing a lot of this. And that's going to be the bigger challenge on that. It's not going to be an easy answer, quite frankly. Point of fact, I think that it's going to become far more complicated in terms of that. The analogy about it going to the UN and seeing how they've addressed problems. We could see how just on passing a resolution, it becomes a very involved process. And that's something that's not changing anybody's law. But just getting general agreement on, hey, listen, we think this is a good thing or a bad thing. But, but you know, Mike, thinking about that, and we talk about, you know, getting that many countries or jurisdictions right on board with something. 
I think we're all surprised at how quickly that was done with BEPS, right? I, I mean, I, th I, I think people saw, okay, that initiative, it's going to take number 10, 20, how many years is it going to take for that many jurisdictions to agree on some basic principles? But that happened in a matter of really just a few years. So I agree that the likelihood or the challenge is there, but I, I think we've seen when push comes to shove, it, it can be surprisingly done. I don't know, Doug. I'm not quite that optimistic. I think right now the only step that we're at is that we figured out that we want to go out for pizza, but we still haven't figured out what kind of pizza we're ordering, let alone where it's going to go after that. I'm personally a fan of pepperoni myself, but just to even underscore even the moment in history here, I mean, we know what a tax war looks like. We don't quite know what it looks like on this scale. That hasn't happened before. The thing is, on the horizon, that's not theoretical anymore. That's a real possibility. Today's digital age allows for companies to operate in places where they have no physical presence and skirt the tax rules of the countries where they're operating in. All this has a tax framework firmly built 100 years ago and based on brick and mortar. All of these major pitfalls and a lack of uniform agreement on how to respond, jurisdictions just have to take individual action, causing friction on a global scale. Scale. I have to say, from a perspective of history, I'm reminded here of what I got taught in seventh grade about the Articles of Confederation, that there's so many holes in it, and it's not this concrete, centralized step forward. And I wonder if that has a lot to do with how we're seeing centralization now more than ever. It's important to home in on one of the main areas of dispute, digital services taxation. In July 2019, we saw the first inklings of a digital taxation dispute between the U.S. and France. Mike, let's start with you. Can you give us some insight as to what happened here? Well, really what it comes down to is this. When you're looking at activities that are really just digital in nature that just exist in the ether, it kind of upends everybody's idea of what is actually occurring and where it's occurring. In effect, when you're ordering something through the internet, you don't actually know who you're dealing with or where they're located. And that's really the entire problem that you have with looking at a digital service tax. The question comes down to where is that action occurring? To put the contrast in terms of the real world terms, of what people were accustomed to. In the old days, you used to go over to a store, talk to a clerk and buy something. Today, that clerk is the internet. And that internet doesn't have a fixed locus like that. And so the question then comes down to, where is the activity occurring? How am I defining it? Is it where the order is accepted? Is it where it's being shipped from? Or is it where it's being placed? And each of them can be in vastly different places. Go back to what you're saying a moment ago, France. A customer in France is looking at a screen and ordering, I don't know, a pasta bowl. That pasta bowl could actually be being manufactured in China, but the design for that pasta bowl was actually done in Milan. And of course, where that order is actually being accepted could be who knows where. And that's really the case of where are you looking at what the activity is who's actually selling that possible and where it's being shipped from and everything else. And that's really where you get into the question of, okay, I've lost X number of manufacturing jobs in France to a foundry or, you know, any kind of other process someplace else in the world. I've lost the IP that goes with it in terms of who designed it. All of that then comes down to, well, what can I reach out and touch? Well, the one thing I can reach out and touch is my local customer over here inside of France. And I can exert on them the requirement that they, as a consumer of this thing that's being shipped from who knows where, the requirement to pay a VAT tax on it. I can then look at it from the point of view of who the seller is. Well, you come into my country electronically and are now selling things over here. So I want to tax the value of that as a measure of an income tax. Now, the question comes down to, are we going to actually do it as like an income tax? where I'm going to require you to fill out a P&L of sorts on the tax return and come to a number on there? Or am I going to treat you like an insurance company that is paying a premium tax so that I don't actually care if you are making money or not on that sale? I'm just going to tell you that I'm taxing you 
basically on a gross receipts basis on that, similar to what a premium tax does. And that's really where the actually dispute comes in. Because now the question comes down to what gives you that country the right to tax me when I just exist in the ether? It's funny you should mention France, Mike, because it's France that shot the first warning across the bow about potential disputes about this. And I, and I think that's where uh, Matt was going with this was, you know, in it was in you know 2019, like like July, when, when France uh, enacted a digital services tax, right? They were one of the first ones. I think they they kicked off this dispute, right? They're the ones that first kind of said, you know, we're going to do something about it. We're going to enact a, a, a digital services tax, right? And it applied to the large tech companies, obviously. It was as Mike talked about. So it was a 3% tax on gross revenue sourced from uh, digital interfaces, digital advertising, online intermediate services, all quote unquote located in France. How the various countries reacted, you know, let's take US for example, which is also, you know, big in the, as a tech player, big in the uh, uh, tech space. It kind of looked at through the lens of uh, a trade act, the trade act of 1974 to be specific. And it was a violation of that. After a you know, bit of an investigation, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative decided that the tax discriminates against U.S. companies. Not a surprising conclusion. is inconsistent with prevailing principles of international tax, unusually burdensome for affected U.S. companies. Typical law language, right? It's just unreasonably burdensome. It's basic law, but applied to this specific uh, tax. The uh, U.S. said it would uh, impose tariffs on fringe goods. Again, that trade war going on is how we're going to react to this. We're going to initiate a little bit of a trade war, fringe goods in 2020, but ultimately suspended the tariffs. So, you know, ultimately, you know, with the help of the G7, which includes U.S. and France, you know, the G7 issued a communique that provided that uh, France would remove the digital tax services in light of, uh, of an agreement on some new international tax law framework, including a minimum tax and updated nexus rule. Um, so it was the first shot across the bow, like I said, of this global tax war around the digital economy. Actually, I agree with Doug on that. And it was the first reaction on there. Uh, it set the stage for trying to have the discussions as to, well, how are we going to rationalize this? How are we going to make this really work in terms of that? And that's really highlighting everything that we're talking about before. Ultimately, it's going to take a reevaluation of how we define who's doing what, where, and how to measure it. Because ultimately, that's the answer. Unless you can actually put something in place that quantifies what the activity is and how that activity then should be dealt with from the local taxing perspective on there, really, that's the issue that you're trying to resolve. And that's really where you end up with disagreements. One of the things that has been a sticking point throughout this is getting that basic definition in place as to who's doing what with whom, where, and why. Ultimately, until you resolve that, which is obviously not a simple resolution, it's still going to be leading to the same types of conflicts on there. And it really becomes a country-by-country perspective on that. Because like anything else, if you're a country that is losing manufacturing jobs to other places, then your emphasis is going to be on the consumption side of it in terms of who's ordering what, because you don't really care from where, but just that who's ordering what within that jurisdiction on there. And it breaks down into the two parts that we're talking about, either collecting it as a VAT tax or collecting it as kind of like a gross receipts tax in some fashion on there. When you start getting into questions of, well, we're going to make it like an income tax, then the question then comes down to, great, but who's going to define what the taxable income calculation is going to be? And there you have the conflict between GAAP and IFRS. You get the concept between who's providing unfair support for certain activities within a jurisdiction to try and draw people to there, to try and draw activity there. And it still becomes the same type of challenge. Who's doing what for whom? How are you defining it? And whether or not you're going to agree with Matt that pepperoni pizza is the best thing in the world, by the way, Matt, I endorse that 100%, or you want a Hawaiian pizza. (laughs) And at our own personal global conference that we're having right now, we now outweigh everybody and can do what we want. And uh, that's the problem with government, or at least having 
even a democratic structure, which is that the majority can outvote you. And here we we come into our problems with centralization. So just even taking a step back here, returning to the present moment, Doug, let's start with you. Are digital service taxes the problem or are they symptom of a greater problem? I, I think this is the, the symptom of a, of a larger problem, right? I, I don't think it's the digital tax per se in and of itself is the problem. The larger problem is different jurisdictions fighting over a, a certain amount of the piece of the pie, right? There, there's only so much of the pie and jurisdictions are always fighting over uh, their fair share or competing for you know a different uh, proportion uh, of the pie. So it's just the digital services is the new frontier. It is the new hot topic. It's what's current and, and, and in the forefront. Um, and it's also what's developing. It's probably developing as a, it, not so much an industry, but an area of tax so rapidly. Uh, but that's just the nature of the technology. So uh, I, I do think it's just a symptom of a, the larger overall problem of competing for you know, as much a piece of the pie as possible. And Michael, are digital service taxes the problem or are they symptomatic of a greater problem? I think that really, Doug hit the nail on the head. This is the current iteration of it. One matter, shape or form or another, it's always going to be the same kind of question as to what way you measure things and how you measure things. And I think that the bigger issue that it's highlighting is the fact that law does not change as fast as technology does. It's reactive and not proactive. So Mike hit the nail on the head there. And for a system to be fundamentally reactionary, there will always be this problem. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. It's interesting, however, to note that a lot of these taxes are carefully applied to certain businesses in particular industries and very greatly in terms of structure. Just as an example, Australia and Hungary, the digital tax is applied only to revenues from online advertising. Meanwhile, in France, it applies to revenue from advertising, data collection for advertising, and digital interface. Do, do you think that the lack of uniformity will create friction between countries? Mike, let's start with you. Actually, that's the traditional way of creating that friction. When there's no common definition as to what the tax base is going to be or any base is going to be, that's where you set the stage. One of the things that uh, we always joke around about, but it's very true, when you have everybody following the same set of rules, there are no planning opportunities. Why? Because everybody's following the same set of rules. But once you get somebody to diverge from it, ah, planning opportunities are now being born. And that's exactly what you're talking about. If people take different ideas as to what the definitions are going to be and how that activity is going to be playing out, that's where companies are going to go in and fill that void with planning opportunities. It's not just human nature to, for everybody to play by the same rules. I, I'm sorry, it's just not. People, you know, are always, you know, they're, they're competitive, looking for advantages. You know, that's, that's why the OECD uh, guidelines for Action Item 13 and, and local files have gone from a standard template to all the different, uh, most of, many of the jurisdictions, let's put it that way, creating their own nuances to it, their own requirements. Nobody wanted to play by the exact same rules. They could not find a competitive advantage in that. So I, I just think that's, you know, that's contrary to human nature and is never really attainable. Because everybody is looking at it from a competitive perspective, 
to looking at it as a zero-sum game. In order for me to gain, I've got to deprive somebody else of something. So in in recent news at the OECD's Inclusive Frameworks talks, uh, 131 nations agreed to new international taxation rules, including a 15% global minimum tax and allocation of taxing rights. But eight nations are still not buying into the idea. There's the list, Barbados, Estonia, Hungary, Ireland, Kenya, Nigeria, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and Sri Lanka. So let's let's ask who we've got here starting with uh, let's start with Doug how could this failure to cooperate create conflict down the road I think there's always going to be conflict let's 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 level set there I think it's the goal is to minimize the conflict right and I think there will be the OECD will will use both carrots and sticks to kind of get these outliers in line I mean a couple of them you look at are traditionally unique. You know, the Barbados, the Grenadines, these are kind of, I'm not calling them in particular tax havens, but they've got that connotation, right? They're, they're, they kind of sit outside the normal tax frameworks or, or, or tax dynamics. A couple of them, though, are interesting because they're very much out, more outside, like a, a Sri Lanka or a Nigeria. I think these jurisdictions and these regimes do a lot of things their own way. I think there's a lot, not to get political, but dictatorships, uh, bureaucracy that may never be able to be brought into the fold. So there are always going to be those outliers. I think, you know, the ones like Ireland, Hungary, your more traditional, you know, uh, Western, Eastern European uh, jurisdictions and societies, they'll be brought more in line so that the OECD can have some uniformity, at least the appearance of one. I think one of the other issues that you have is depending on some of the countries that are involved, some of them are dependent on extractive industries, which obviously put them in a completely different category because of the fact that they have uh, royalties or extraction fees that they're generating. Others are really looking at it from the point of view of the services that are in there and how this is going to cut down on what their activities are. And again, going back into that argument of how do you balance the competing interests over here. That's really going to be the challenge because some of them are indeed mired in extractive processes, which are labor intensive, which from their point of view is great. Folks have jobs, they're doing work, they're getting paid, and it's generating revenues from us in this fashion. So why do I want to upset the apple cart or upset my people by putting in something that could raise the cost of goods for them that they're getting through the internet? On the other side of the coin, if I'm in one of the service countries, like in Ireland, and I've got an attractive rate and I've got good employment going on for my folks, why do I want to concede anything to anybody else? There's no advantage in there. There's no benefit to be had. But in fact, there could be a detriment to me. And the one thing that we're ignoring throughout this is really the corporate point of view, the last aspect of it. Corporations themselves are looking at it from the point of view like, hey, wait a minute. All you guys are competing for a different slice of my income without actually doing anything that's demonstrably beneficial to me. Why am I not going to object and start lobbying everybody everywhere to get my point of view across? And that's really where the issue is going to lie. How do we balance out the different competing interests on there? Because the consumers are on one side, the companies on the other side, and the governments are the other aspect of it. It's really going to be a very unique tug of war on this. Yeah, no, and to follow Mike's point, I think... Where this is playing out, and not to get too deep in the weeds, um, and where we see this playing out is in what the OECD is now moving forward with uh, as part of Action Item 1, which is the, uh, you know, to address the, the challenges of the digital economy, are what they call Pillars 1 and 2, which is Pillar 1 trying to address the digital tax, the digital economy, and Pillar 2 coming up with maybe that minimum tax, corporate tax, common, uniform global corporate tax uh, dynamic or, or framework. So I think that's where you're seeing these dynamics or these push and pull, these challenges starting to take an actual shape and framework. 
Indeed, and the OECD's inclusive framework has committed to finalizing the new international tax rules by October 2021, with the expectation that the 131 countries will enact the legislation shortly thereafter to be effective by 2023. Let's stay with Michael. Uh, how can MEs adapt to the changing transfer pricing landscape, and how can they be on the offensive if a tax war does break? out? Well, actually, I think companies are going to try and benefit from it. And they're probably hoping in a lot of cases that a war does break out because when a war breaks out, each side is going to be doing different things to really try and draw their activity to that country on there. And that's really where it's going to be interesting to see who's actually adopting what and what form it's going to take, because that's really where planning opportunities are going to be born on that. Quite frankly, I see this as being an extremely active time where Structure and form are going to be taking a lot of evolutionary steps. And depending on who's doing what for whom, we're going to have kind of like an arms race going on over here. As different jurisdictions put different rules in place, different companies are going to be modifying what their activities are. And then the country is going to be responding to that again. I don't think it's going to be a very simple and easy task on that. I'll point of fact, I think it's extraordinarily optimistic on the part of the OECD to think that they're going to arrive at a consensus by October. I've got 60 plus years of the states arguing over what UDIPA means and where and how that's being applied as kind of my weather vane showing which way the wind's blowing on that. When you multiply that by two and a half times, you get the number of countries that are involved in here. Well, not really giving it really good odds. I think to Mike's point, you know, winning or at least not being run over is part of this, you know, this global war you know, the the tax war that we're talking about in the OECD initiatives is the key is going to be awareness, right? For multinationals, being aware of of what is being proposed, being aware of options as a result. And and I think what this means for multinationals is bulking up their resources, indeed, if you will, either internally or they're going to be leaning on their advisors, their consultants uh, a great deal more to keep them aware. And because change is going to happen rapidly, and I think a lot of multinationals are simply going to struggle to have the wherewithal to keep up and keep up the awareness. So I think it's also going to present a lot of opportunities for people to provide that awareness. And multinationals have to be open to change. I I think, you know, there are those multinationals that are structured such that they're very static. Change does not come easily. Been a part of a couple. And I think they're going to have to adapt a little more or they're going to get left out in the cold a little bit. Indeed. In fact, there's no denying it. A looming tax war is on the horizon and MEs can't stand by idly. In fact, it's more crucial than ever to stay on top of the changing regulations and rules for a closer look the possibility of taxation, tariffs, and digital service tax. While the landmark G7 deal and the OECD inclusive framework provide a taste of change to come, there's still a long way to go, and a global clash over tax isn't off the table yet. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu.
Welcome back, everyone. Now comes time for my favorite part of the show, a rapid-fire round of questions we call What We Want to Know. We have two guests in the hot seat, so I'm going to take our first question and assume their answer, which is yes, and that question is, are you ready? We usually do that every time, uh, but to avoid an internet call collision as we've had trying to record today's episode, I'm going to spare everybody. Uh, but let's start with Doug with question two, which is, who is someone you admire and why? For me, clearly my father. I mean, I, I don't think that's a surprising answer for a lot of people. He always tried to do the right thing, and he was the consummate disciplinarian. So I know that's a pretty cliche answer, but for me, it most certainly is my my deceased father. I know we've talked about those at the summits, Doug, and I, I'm, I'm there with you with my relationship with my dad. Yep. But uh, yes, Mike, your answer. It's kind of hard to disagree with that. I think that uh, my dad was probably one of the stronger influences in my life. His work ethic, his, uh, his uh, basic tenet of just doing what had to be done to keep everybody together, to keep the family going on that. It's just a good way to lead your life, to just keep plugging away at it. Yeah, of course. Mike, staying with you, what was your first job and what did you learn from it that you apply to your work today? Well, I think that probably the most interesting aspect of it was my first job was working for the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, which had been around for over 100 years at that point. And it taught me a variety of different skill sets. Because quite frankly, it was a small store and you had to learn how to do everything from, hey, man, the produce counter to running a cash register to stocking shelves. And just that it taught you the value of really not being a specialist at anything, but being able to handle anything that was thrown at you and being able to do it well. Amen. Doug, your first job, what did you learn? My first job, I was uh, I bus tables at a, uh, at a friend's restaurant, a family friend's restaurant, where we got free meals. The thing I learned from it was, in real life, there is no free meal. <laughs> good. Very good answer. And yes, I, I, I started as a busboy as well. What's your favorite guilty pleasure? Let's start with Doug. Hats, fedoras, hats. all kinds of hats, <laughs> collecting hats. Love it. Love it. Love it. Not just baseball caps, mind you. Of course. You know, like other kinds. Of course. And Michael. Ice cream. Like anything else in life, everything goes well with ice cream. Now, I don't know what Milton Friedman had to say about free ice cream, but I'm here's holding out. What area of tax do you think needs the biggest overhaul? Let's start with Doug. I bounce back and forth on this. Either the, the capital gains tax or the estate tax. I think they're both very punitive, especially the estate tax. I know it's at a, set at a very high mark, really, for, for the average Americans, but I do think it's punitive and penalizes uh, success during your lifetime. And Michael. You know something, Doug, I'm kind of going to agree with you, except for the opposite reason. I think that the inheritance tax is probably one of the things that needs the most overhaul, precisely because it rewards people from winning the lottery of birth. Uh, fair point. Fair point. We'll have to agree to disagree. <laughs> That'll be another podcast episode. In that time. should be another podcast. <laughs> exactly. Michael and Doug, I, I want to thank you both for being with us again on today's show. It it's been such a pleasure. Uh, and we also want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There you'll find Cross Border Solutions' entire suite of tax podcasts. My name's Matthew DeMello, and they let me host this podcast. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. As we always say, folks, stay safe out there, get vaccinated, and we'll see each other very soon. Till next week. Till next week.